Well, as we begin a new series today in the book of Acts, it'd be really great to have your Bibles still open at Acts chapter 10 or your Bible app ready there at Acts chapter 10. And there's also an outline on the back of the news, so if that's helpful, have that in front of you. But right now, let's, let's pray and ask for the ultimate help. Gracious God, we thank you so much for all your good gifts to us, and we especially thank you for the gift of the good news of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would help us and grow us in our understanding of just how good the good news really is, of how you are at work in the power of your spirit proclaiming that good news throughout the world, and also our part in sharing the good news that it might go out to everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin a new year, happy new year to everyone, we also begin a new series in the book of Acts. Acts is a unique book in the New Testament because it is actually part of a two-volume set of Luke-Acts. Luke and Acts are not placed alongside one another consecutively in how the New Testament has been collected and arranged as we've received it, but don't let that throw you. Luke's intention as the author of both Luke and Acts is that these two books are to be received as complementary parts, accounting for how the gospel, that is the good news that Jesus is the risen Lord of all, how the gospel has gone out into the world. So Luke Luke focused on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the good news going from Galilee to Jerusalem. Acts, which is the second volume of Luke, focuses on how the Spirit is at work through the life and witness of the church taking the good news from Jerusalem out to the very ends of the earth, which symbolically is Rome. So we actually see that in three movements in the book of Acts, to give a bit of a framework as we we come to it this term. So the first part is in chapters 1 to 12, we witness the apostles proclaiming the gospel to the Jews. Uh, The second part is in Acts chapters 13 to 20, in which we witness Paul's missionary journeys proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. And the third part, in chapters 21 onwards, we witness Paul's very eventful missionary journeys and his final incarceration in Rome as the good news reaches the very epicentre of the Roman world. And so in the chain of that account in parts one, two, and three, we are picking up right between the first and second part in chapter 10, which immediately follows the conversion of Paul with Cornelius and Peter having independent visions from God, which then lead them to a meeting which has seismic consequences for the mission of God. This is a watershed moment in the history of the world. This is a breakthrough moment in the global mission of the church. As Peter realises that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for everyone. Now, when you hear that, you think, well, that doesn't really sound like a very big revelation at all. But it really was an enormous revelation. 
if we had oodles of time here this morning, we could go around and we could ask everyone how you got here today. And as I'm sure we asked that question, how did you get here today, we'd really hear a whole diversity, a whole breadth of answers. Pragmatically, some might say that they drove here or walked here or came on the bus or even rode here on your bikes. Those joining online might say they got here by clicking on the link or by jumping onto YouTube. Spiritually, however, if we ask that question, if we consider how we arrived here today, in this moment, there's likely a whole bunch of, of different answers to that question, different answers that really reach back even into the very earliest years of our lives. We might be here today, or you might be here today, because of an RI teacher who came along to your primary school and told you about Jesus. Or because you've had faithful friends who kept showing you the love of Jesus. Or because someone invited you along to Alpha or Carol's, or perhaps they even invited you here today. Others will be here today because you grew up in a Christian family. A Christian family who, who showed you the example of Jesus and embedded you in the life of community and nurtured you in relationship with the living Lord. But actually, if we were to push that even a bit further and further of what led to the events that led you to being here today, it's extraordinary that actually in some way we can trace all of our being here today because of what happened on the day when God acted with Cornelius and Peter. There were two monumental conversions that happened that day. Cornelius, along with his entire family, were converted to becoming followers of Jesus. But also Simon, Simon Peter, was converted in his realisation that as he shared in the mission of the gospel, that it was not just for one group of people, but to everyone, including us. Peter arriving at Cornelius' place is a critical part in our story, receiving the good news, of having the opportunity to receive the good news as the gospel goes out into the world, as the gospel goes viral. The Spirit acts through his people and the gospel goes out and is received. That's the pattern we see. So let's look at this encounter in three parts. In impassable gulf, the Lord overcomes and the gospel for everyone. First, in impassable gulf, and when I say impassable gulf, I don't mean some sort of really difficult sporting game or something like that, but a gap, a gap that just can't be overcome. So let's have a look at verse 1 of chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. So, a few important things to know about Cornelius. First, it's clear that he is a Gentile. He isn't a Jew. That's indicated by his name. It's likely because he lived in Caesarea, a place named after the Caesar but also because of his job, that he was a centurion. 
Centurions were part of the Roman military machine, and each centurion had oversight of 100 men. Yet, despite being a Gentile, Luke tells us that Cornelius was also God-fearing and devout. So he seems to have abandoned the practices of paganism, which dabbled with many gods, and instead he was attracted to believe that there is one God, so he was attracted to monotheism, not merely as some sort of intellectual or philosophical endeavour, but with a sincere devotion. And so we see that Cornelius, along with his entire family, seems sincere because it's reflected in his prayer life, but also in his generosity to the poor. Centurions were actually paid 16 times more than the average soldier, but instead of that leading him to greed, it led him to generosity. Yet, despite being apparently sincere in his faith, Cornelius had not converted to Judaism. So he hadn't become what is known as a, a proselyte to Judaism. At one level, that would have involved baptism and also circumcision, but it also would have involved him rejecting his, his own ethnic identity. Cornelius hadn't done that. And unless he converted to Judaism, rejecting his ethnic identity, there would always be this barrier between him and the Jewish people and his capacity to participate in the religious life of Israel. He was on the fringe. There was this impassable gulf, a, a chasm and a gap between him and them. And that had all sorts of practical implications. Geographically, a devout, pious Jew wouldn't really want to go into a Gentile area. Relationally, a devout Jew wouldn't dare share a meal with a Gentile or visit, the, visit their home or have them visit theirs. Religiously, even a God-fearing Gentile wouldn't be able to fully gather in assembled worship. You know, when Jesus ignores some of those boundaries time and time again, it results in, in all manner of conflict and disgust from the religious leaders of the day. God's plan was for Israel to be a representative to all the nations. Yes, they were to be distinctive, they were to be holy and set apart, but somewhere along the way, that distinctiveness grew into an animosity, even a hatred. Bruce Milne, one commentator, puts it like this, Israel had taken its special privileged role in God's plan as a platform for her own pride and the ground for full-scale rejection and hatred of the Gentiles, separation from whom at every level of life became a basic tenet of their religion. For Cornelius, this was just an impassable gulf. But God breaks into the situation. That's what the angelic vision is all about. Now, when I hear about angelic visions, I think, well, this seems like a pretty extraordinary event, and they're not very common, and even as you read through the scriptures, they don't happen very often. Yet, despite the rarity of angelic visions, this one, or at least the message of this one, seems rather run of the mill. So, on the surface level, it's almost like Cornelius is just to dispatch a few minions on some everyday errand or some sort of incidental life administrative task. The angel said to him, Cornelius, verse 5, now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. 
here's the same as Simon the Tanner, his house is by the sea. That's the message. Cornelius, send some people on a 63-kilometre trek to collect someone called Simon Peter, who is staying at Simon the Tanner's house, that he might come back to you. Okay, sure. You've got to wonder if Cornelius really thought, what's going to come of this? What is this purpose? You've got to wonder if he had any inkling of what God was orchestrating. But what does Cornelius do? Cornelius, Cornelius do? Precisely what he was told. And what we witness is that this seemingly impassable gulf between Jew and Gentile was dealt with because the Lord overcomes. So unbeknown to Cornelius, less than 24 hours after his vision, Simon Peter is having a vision of his own. So verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. When we hear the word here for vision, that Peter had a vision, it actually conveys that it's far more intense than that of Cornelius. Now, that's not because Peter was super spiritual, So you'll know that Peter is praying, but he's also probably a bit distracted. Why? Because he's hungry. So there's no mistaking that this is all God. But when Peter sees these animals and hears God's command, it's repeated three times, Peter's response isn't just, no, thank you, or no, I can't eat those. But his response is one of utter disgust. This isn't just a toddler who's unhappy with their meal but Peter's revulsed by the idea. Surely not, Lord. That's a totally contradictory response, those words put together. So in one word, Peter is acknowledging that this is the Lord of all, yet simultaneously he's rejecting the command of the Lord of all to kill and eat. Peter knows that many of these animals were prohibited food, yet he also knows that God was the one who instituted that prohibition. And recognising that God is Lord of all, yet refusing to obey, really makes no sense. But Peter just can't even begin to see a way through this. I think, actually, we might be tempted to do that with our lives as well. That at one level, we might be happy to acknowledge that God is the Lord of all, yet sometimes, simultaneously, we're not willing to obey if we don't fully understand how God's plans are all working out. This isn't just God changing his mind any more than a parent who says to the child in one moment, don't cross the road, but at the right time says, yes, you can go now. There's a bigger purpose in play. The purpose of the food laws, or at least part of the purpose of the food laws detailed in Leviticus 11 and chapter 20, were about helping the people of God to understand their role in the world. They were to be a people set apart, holy, for the Lord. 
But that being set apart wasn't because they were better. It wasn't to drive a wedge between them and everyone else. But they were markers to remind them that they were to be a distinctive people with a mission as mediators between God and the whole world. That's what they were set apart to do. That was part of their mission. The food laws didn't make them clean. God was the one who would make them clean. So know that when Peter protests that he hasn't ever eaten anything unclean, the Lord responds in verse 15, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Such is the authority of God. And of course, this is completely consistent with what Jesus said. It's not what goes into a person's mouth that makes them unclean, but what comes out of their mouth that makes them unclean. And so our ultimate problem is, is not what we eat or don't eat, but it's a much deeper problem, problem for all of sin. The prophets and the psalmists long for a time in which the Messiah would open up a way for every person of every nation to be saved. And of course, it's Jesus' death and resurrection that make that possible. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that make us clean. And in this moment, with eliminating the food regulations that had become grounds for separating Jew and Gentile, Peter is now free to go to the home of the Gentile. When you step back for a moment, it's really quite an extraordinary series of events. Cornelius has an angelic vision of God. The angel tells him to dispatch some people to Simon Peter's house. Cornelius immediately sends three people on their way. They make the 63-kilometre journey to Joppa. On their way, as they get close, Simon Peter is praying, possibly a bit hungry, and he has a vision that disturbs and confuses him. He's wondering what that is all about, and he really doesn't know. He doesn't know how he'll possibly understand. And it's that moment, that precise moment, that there's a shout from the gate, basically a knock on the door, with the Spirit saying to him, don't hesitate to go with them. I have sent them to you. It's as if God is saying, Peter, are you wondering what this means? Let me join the dots for you if only you go with them. I wonder how many times God is at work like that in our lives. It might not quite be as dramatic. But I'm sure that this year, in 2023, there's going to be many moments in which you don't understand, we don't understand how our faithfulness, even small bits of faithfulness, connect with the big picture of how the Spirit of God is at work. And when we don't understand that big picture, sometimes that can make us hesitant to obey or even tempt us to disengage from God's mission. But make no mistake, God is working out his purposes in the world. Peter is about to discover that the gospel is for everyone. It seems to never really crossed his mind, but now in Cornelius's house, so having had the vision about the food, Peter now sees how it all makes sense, how it all pieces together. So verse 34. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what it is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. 
we're going to explore the second half of this chapter in a lot greater detail next week. But don't miss the essential point. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for you. Cornelius wasn't saved because he did good or he gave money. Cornelius was saved because he heard the gospel and he came to rightly trust that Jesus is Lord of all. The gospel is for each and every one of us. It's because of the good news of Jesus that we're made clean, that we're forgiven. And you can know that, you can receive that simply by trusting in Jesus as Lord. If Peter hadn't showed up, how would Cornelius have known? I think that means as a church, that as the people of God, we must ensure that we do everything possible to ensure that we don't create artificial barriers from people hearing the good news. So this isn't some sort of modern idea that anything goes, but that everyone is invited to respond through repentance to receive the forgiveness and life that Jesus brings. So as the gospel goes out, in the power of the Spirit, he involves his church in his mission. So across geography to the very ends of the earth, across culture to every person, no matter where they're from, across time for every person of every age and stage through every age that is yet to come. The gospel transcends it all. When it comes to the gospel, every person is equal. Every person is invited to respond for the slave and free, for the rich and poor, for male and female, Jew and Gentile. And this day, at Cornelius' house, Peter finally gets it. The question is, do we? When we were coming out of lockdowns, which I don't know if it feels like a long time ago or a very you know, recent time, but when we were coming out of lockdowns and we could return to in-person gatherings here at St Bards, I was pretty keen to abandon live streaming of services as soon as possible. I have to admit that. And I couldn't really see as thought about it, or really couldn't fully see how this might fit into God's mission and if this was really going to be a helpful thing long term. There were lots of questions. But when we asked why people join online, we discovered that 65% of people do so because they're physically dislocated, so because of mobility or remoteness or health. We also found that 10% join online because they're inquiring, they're, they're curious about Christianity. And what we didn't pick up was that with almost every single person who comes along in person who's new, well, they've often joined online almost always for anywhere between one week and two years beforehand. Now, of course, sharing the good news isn't just about coming along to church. There could be people on our front lines who, in practice, we have assumed the gospel isn't for them. We might not ever say that, but that's what might be reflected in our actions. We might hesitate from telling them because we think, well, they're just not interested. Or we might think, actually, this is just too big of a change for them, so we don't bother. 
But when it comes to the gospel, no one is second class. Every person is made in the image of God. All have been redeemed by the Lord who reigns. And everyone deserves an opportunity to respond to the good news. So those living in your household, working in your workplace, studying with you at school or uni, playing in your sporting club, working out in your gym, the good news is for every single one of them. God is already at work. We're just invited to join in. Some years after Peter went to Cornelius's home, despite the vision that he'd had of the gospel fruit that he had witnessed, when Peter was challenged about the table fellowship that he shared with Gentiles, instead of standing firm all those years later in that conviction, he actually began to disengage from sharing meals with Gentiles. Despite all that had happened, Peter backed away from that conviction. It's a great reminder to us. Let's never back away in our hearts, our words or our actions from the conviction that the gospel is for everyone. Today is the beginning of a new year. So as we begin the year, let's prioritise how we are part of the continuing story of the gospel going out. The continuing story of the gospel, drilling down, reshaping our hearts and minds, but going out that others too might know the good news. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the good news that Jesus is Lord of all. We thank you that it's by your kindness and mercy that because of many people and their faithfulness responding to your spirit at work over many centuries, that we can be here today, hear the good news, and also rejoice in it as well. Lord, we particularly pray that you might really give us an emboldened conviction that the gospel is for everyone. Lord, we pray that you might really be at work in the power of your spirit, showing us on all of our front lines, those whom uh, are known to us, for whom the gospel is for as well. Lord, we pray that by your mercy, that you might continue to be at work that we are part of the continuing story of the gospel going out, drilling down deep into our lives and being proclaimed with our whole lives too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.